Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are Celtics vs. Heat and Mavericks vs. Warriors, a preview of the NBA Conference Finals, plus a look into the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and where the New Orleans Saints rank after their latest free agency signing. It's episode 73 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. What is up, everybody, here on Thursday, May 19th, 2022, the 73rd edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in wherever you are getting this podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, I say hello. If you are listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, I also say hello, but just just two different. You can see me and you can hear me. Um, This past week has been absolutely incredible just simply on the fact that I was able to go to the TD Garden this past Sunday for Game 7 of Celtics Bucks, and it was absolutely unreal. The atmosphere, that was my first uh, Game 7 for anything. It was only my third ever playoff game I've been to. I went recently uh, to the American League Championship Series at Fenway uh, back in October, And then a couple of years ago, I went to a Celtics first round matchup against the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, in LeBron James' second stint. So that was my third playoff game, but the atmosphere was unreal, unreal. And I highly recommend everyone, if you have a bucket list, put down game seven of a playoff series on that list. You got to get there no matter where it is, if it's baseball, uh, football, hockey, basketball whatever it is you gotta get to a game seven it's absolutely unreal but now that that game is in the past we can look forward to the present and that is the nba conference finals and we are down to the final four in the chase for the nba championship and both series are still fresh there's only been one game each and by the time this episode comes out boston and miami will have played game two And there are a lot of disclaimers, I think, between the Celtics and the Heat. You know, a lot of players that aren't playing right now. Kyle Lowry's out for Miami. We found out today Derek White's not going to play. Al Horford's still in uh, health and safety protocols. And we don't know about Marcus Smart. But I think regardless of injury status, who's in, who's out, I think this is going to be a very competitive series. I think it's going to be extremely competitive between these two, simply for the fact that they're they're similar on both ends, you know, somewhat similar on both ends of the floor. These are two very strong defensive teams. I've been singing the praises of the Heat uh, pretty much all playoffs long. The fact that they were able to uh, shut down Trey Young and then shut down the Philly team. Um, but this is a much tougher task, obviously. Boston's a much better team than Philly and Atlanta. Um, and then on the offensive end, you know, this is a team they're not they're not deeply Heavy on the three. Obviously, it was different uh, for Boston against Milwaukee because the Bucs were giving 
the Celtics, all of these threes. But uh, this is a team, uh, both teams have a very strong presence uh, on offense. They can uh, beat you in a bunch of different ways. So that's what I see why it's going to be extremely competitive because it's almost, it's almost like Boston and Miami are looking in a mirror for each other. And uh, just to get into game one really quick, it was a tale of two halves, obviously. Yeah, the Celtics playing very, very strong uh, to start out that first half. I think they were up by like 13 or 14 at one point uh, and led eight at halftime. Um, But then Miami just came out on fire in that third quarter. Uh, They were down eight and then they used a 22 to two run, I believe. And then Jimmy Butler was just unreal. It's funny how many people overlook Jimmy Butler just because he's not really like a big time, you know, superstar. He's not a game changer. You know, he's not a, I I should say he's not a freak NBA player like Giannis, who's a basically a six ten point forward or Embiid, who's a dominant uh, big man center. Jimmy Butler's just a really good basketball player. He's really, really good. He doesn't do anything that's, that's really game changing. He just goes and he makes his shots. I mean, he had 41 points on the night. Shot 12 of 19 from the field, 17 of 18, though, from the free throw line, and 0 of 2 from 3. I think that's why that's why him and DeMar DeRozan, uh, when he had his 40-point game against Milwaukee, were so overlooked because there were no threes at all. But not only on the points and the scoring, but 9 rebounds, 5 assists, 4 steals, 3 blocks. Jimmy Butler, I think, is going to have to be the leading scorer every single time for Miami to win this series. Obviously he's not going to put up 41 points every single time, but he's got to get, you know, maybe 30 plus Um, either that, or it's got to be, you know, multiple guys uh, with 15 over, you know, I'm talking Tyler hero, Oladipo, um, Adebayo. Adebayo has to be a little bit better inside just because I think, you know, the Celtics had um, a a good time in the paint. They were able to, to abuse Adebayo and Dwayne Demond when he came in you know, with Tice, Robert Williams, uh, and then eventually when he comes back, Al Horford. So that's got to pick up for Miami. But in the overall scheme of things, Butler is going to have to take over games. And, um, you know, I did say 17 of 18 from the free throw line. I don't expect him to get to the line 18 times. So that's that, I think, is going to change. And it's going to be really... I like the two coaches in this series, you know, Ime Odoka for the Celtics, Eric Spolster for the Heat. It's going to be a lot of mid-game adjustments. And obviously, we've seen in this postseason for Boston that game one, they struggle a little bit, but they're able to make the adjustments into game two. So tonight's game two is going to be really interesting to see if the Celtics have a different game plan. Obviously, things are shifting a little bit uh, with no Derek White on the floor, but do they change things defensively? Do they throw a bunch of different looks at Jimmy Butler? Uh, do we see more minutes possibly, you know, because the Celtics are shorthanded? Do we get more minutes from Aaron Neesmith? That's going to be real interesting to see who makes the adjustments the quickest. But honestly, if you ask me, I think Boston is the better team, but we've seen in uh, years past that the better team doesn't always uh, win in the end. So it's just, getting a good string of games. I think for Boston, there's no real panic in losing game one because fans have seen in the past what happens. Even if they lose game one, they come back and they win the series. But I think what's important on Miami's side of things 
is that they've got to get, they got to continue to force those turnovers. Okay. This, this is a very streaky, I think kind of offensive team um, for the Celtics. You know, once they get rolling, they really get rolling. And then when they start to struggle, you saw what happened in that third quarter, you know, Jason Tatum, multiple free throw uh, turnovers, I should say. Jalen Brown kind of was non-existent um, and they just couldn't really make shots. So I think it comes down to uh, defense, I think, and who's just able to make shots because it's not going to be, you know, a 125 to 120 kind of game. It's going to be real locked down defensively. Um, And I do think this goes at least six games between these two. And honestly, if you ask me, I think somehow, some way the Celtics are going to turn things around um, and we've seen that they can win on the road, but I think the, the best way I can look at it is that if the Celtics win game two tonight, then there's a very, very strong chance that I think they can win, uh, the series. But even if they lose, we've seen that they're able to go on the road and win, and they will eventually be at full strength. You know, um, Al Horford, I, I, it's hard to know exactly what the protocols are in terms of clearing out, but it's a minimum of five days. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of tests and stuff like that. So at the minimum, Horford's going to miss two games. So you're hoping that he's back for game three. Uh, Derek White, I assume, is going to be back for game three uh, when he returns from the birth of his child. Congratulations, D. White. And then Marcus Smart, you know, he's probably going to be limited in game two because of that sprained foot. Um, But this team is going to be very, uh, they're going to be healthy by game three, by game three. And we know what the, what the Celtics are like at home. I'm still going to ride with the Celtics. I think the Celtics do beat the heat. You know, that's just, I guess the fan of me talking a little bit, but I think it's going to be a highly competitive series between these two. Um, just because they're they're similar, they're two very similar teams, and I like, um, you know, I I just think the Celtics have the confidence. You know, they beat uh, KD, Kyrie, and the Nets. They beat Giannis and the Bucks. Now all you gotta do is get past Miami, and you're almost there. You're almost there. But I think regardless, I think it's gonna be a very entertaining series to watch between these two. But on the other side, on the Western Conference, you got the Warriors and the Mavericks, and we saw in Game One. The Warriors easily, easily taking care of Dallas. I mean, I was able to watch that game from start to finish. And I think, you know, it was relatively close in the first half and then the Warriors just exploded. And I just think I look at the depth that Golden State has offensively. You know, when you have, you know, guys like Steph Curry were struggling. Curry was like, I think, to start the game two of five from the free throw line, which is very surprising. Uh, Clay Thompson was struggling until we got to the second half. Then he started playing better. Draymond Green had his presence and then obviously Jordan Poole, et cetera. But I'm looking at one player for the Warriors and that's Kevon Looney. I think this is a, these are two teams, uh, Golden State and Dallas that don't have size. They don't have a big presence at the center spot as compared to previous teams in the Western conference. Um, And we saw in that first half, how strong Looney was because there's no really paint presence for any Dallas player. I mean, the centers they're playing right now, I think Looney has the edge in terms of physicality. You know, I would take him over Dwight Powell, over Maxi Kleba, and Davis Bertans when it comes to 
getting points in the paint. I would take Looney on that. So I think he's going to get a lot more minutes and we're maybe not going to see that death lineup, you know, with uh, Draymond being at the center spot and then uh, Poole, Curry, and Wiggins. You know, that's that's what I see, you know, I think gives Golden State the edge is um, their center who might not get him a, a ton of minutes, but he's going to make a uh, really strong value of those minutes because everyone's going to look, you know, Dallas defenders are going to look at all the weapons, Curry, Thompson, Poole. They're going to put all their attention to them. That's going to open up the paint, uh, not just for Looney scoring, but, you know, there was a great pass he had to Clay Thompson and just moving without the ball is what the Warriors do very, very well. So that's another, that's one of the reasons why I give Golden State the edge. I think also championship experience is huge in these kind of moments. I know Luca has been sort of, he's someone who likes the spotlight, you know, who enjoys uh, in these kind of moments. We saw it against Phoenix and then against Utah. Um, so I expect Luca to have a big series, but everyone else is another question. You know, we've seen Reggie Bullock be a streaky shooter. Jalen Brunson's a little bit streaky. Um, that's just it, overall, it's a streaky, streaky Dallas team. So that's why I look at the size. I look at the experience and then I just look at the, uh, just overall, overall, I like golden state. I like golden state to come out of this series and I'm not going to, I'm not formulating a conclusion right after game one, but Dallas has got to shoot way better. They got to attack the paint a whole lot more, especially when the Warriors are limited in terms of the center spot. And they always seem limited in that spot. So they got to find a way to attack the paint and stop settling for the three pointers so much. That's how the Mavericks get back into this series and try and make it competitive. And we've seen that the Mavericks can get totally outmatched early on, but then when they get home, it's a whole different ball game. So, this could be all irrelevant once the series shifts uh, to Texas and the Mavericks get that home court. But in the immediate, uh, in the immediate future that I'm looking at right now, I give golden state the edge just because they have a lot more movement on offense. They've got experience and they've got size down low. So what my prediction will be after game one is that the Celtics will face the warriors in the NBA finals. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, between these two but the conference finals is always a very exciting series and i am very much looking forward to see who qualifies for the nba finals Let's talk about the NHL, the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs getting underway this past week. And we've got a lot of interesting matchups, I would say, uh, in the second round with the final eight teams vying for the Stanley Cup. Let's start in the East and talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Florida Panthers. I think, you know, it's going to be a very interesting matchup um, just because you have two, I would call, powerhouses of the Eastern Conference. You got Florida, who's obviously the number one team, and then Tampa Bay, who are the defending champs, two-time defending champs, which, you know, I, I go back to it over and over and over, but championship experience, I think, is what Tampa really leans on 
Um, but about Florida, I think, you know, it's all about momentum right now that Florida's trying to ride. You know, they railed off three straight wins after falling behind to Washington 3-2-1 uh, in that series. Um, and then they were able to, you know, get an overtime winner. But the skepticism I have about the Panthers, though, is their special teams. And just offense in general has been really, really limited. And, you know, part of that is the Capitals' defense. But also, you know, it's a completely different shift from the regular season to the postseason. I mean, this was a team that was uh, fifth in the NHL in power play and 16th uh, on penalty kill in the regular season. Now in these uh, their first seven playoff games, they're 0 for 18 on the power play. And they're, they've only got a 67 percentage on the penalty kill, which is 14th among playoff teams. So the special teams does give me some concern about the Panthers. Not only that, but they've gone from over four goals a game in the regular season, which led the entire NHL to now they're only averaging three goals a game during the playoffs. And it's just a lot of the weapons that um, the Panthers have for scoring have just kind of disappeared. I mean, you got Connor Verhage. I hope I'm saying that right. He's been phenomenal. I mean, 12 points, you know, six and six for goals and assists. But what about the other guys who contributed all year long, like uh, Jonathan Huberto or Sam Reiner? You know, where is that sort of support? You know, that's what's crucial in these kinds of games is you need your big players to step up in the most important spots. And uh, Verhage had a great uh, regular season, but we know what this team lies. Uh, relies on they rely on Huberto and Reinhardt and all these other guys you know the depth that they have is extremely huge so I don't know if I would favor the Panthers if they don't turn it around on offense and I would favor Tampa just because I would put the momentum on their side after coming back against Toronto uh, knocking them out again Um, I would have thought you know game one would have been a blowout uh, on the other side, I would have thought Florida would have blown out Tampa five to one or four to one, um, considering it was such a tough um, series against the Leafs for Tampa that, you know, kind of similar to the Celtics, they would have been worn down in game one and Florida would have taken advantage. But, you know, here they are. They win game one handily. They still got a bunch of experience. And I, I do think the absence of Braden Point is going to factor later on in the series. When you need a bunch of more depth, I think Braden Point is going to be uh, a big factor not having him in. So hopefully he does return to the ice. But in the immediate future, I, I think, you know, based on game one impressions, I'd go with Tampa. I think Tampa has just found a second gear. And when you, when you look at what they've done, you know, I mentioned it multiple episodes ago about the Lightning is that, they, their first championship was in that uh, bubble up in Canada, and they won that, I think, in September. Then they won the second one uh, in late June uh, or July, and you'd think they'd, they'd be much more worn down, but you know, Kucherov and the boys look just as strong as they did during that first and that second run, so I would, I would put my money on Tampa on the Lightning to win that series against the Florida Panthers. The other matchup, though, in the Eastern Conference is the Hurricanes and the Rangers. And I think it's going to be very interesting to watch simply due to the fact of what happened in previous series. You got Carolina, who was basically a tale of two teams against the Bruins, where they played 
phenomenal at home, but they struggled on the road. And then you got the Rangers who against the Penguins were down three, one, all hope was lost. And then they make a huge comeback and end up winning the series, um, including a huge overtime win. Now, game one between these two was won by Carolina in overtime, two to one. But the factor that I see is when the series shifts to New York, to Madison Square Garden, because the Canes are going to have to play 10 times better on the road. I mean, they thought that the TD Garden in Boston was loud. I mean, think about New York fans when it comes to postseason time. Madison Square Garden is going to be bumping and it's going to be rocking. Absolutely rocking. And even even in their win, that offense was limited. They were very, very much limited. You could even go back to game seven against Boston, where they only put three goals on the board, whereas uh, previous games against the Bruins, they were putting up four and five and uh, numbers like that. So I think it, it's going to come down to how well can Carolina play on the road. I think getting the home, uh, the home ice advantage is big. It's very important, but... New York is not Boston. The Rangers have the capabilities to win a game on the road, considering all the scoring that they have. And I honestly think that they just have too much scoring um, adding on to this postseason. They're averaging nearly four goals a game uh, in this postseason. And in that series with the Penguins, they've scored at least three times in four of the six games. Um, but I, the factor for the Rangers for me is Igor Shesterkin. He's got to play much better in net than he did against the Penguins. I mean, the game one loss, he did stop uh, 24 shots. He had 24 saves on 26 shots. Um, but when you look at the Penguin series, he got pulled multiple times, even in high-scoring uh, games uh, that the Rangers were able to win. He was still letting up some big, big numbers. So if Shesterkin can find where the success he had in the regular season where He's basically the number one contender, I would say, for the Vezina Trophy as the league's best goaltender. And he even got named a finalist for the Hart Trophy. You know, he's one of the three finalists for the MVP of the entire NHL. So if Shesterkin can find where that sort of performance is, then I think the Rangers have a big advantage. I think they have a big advantage if he's able to score or uh, play well, I should say, where he has. The scoring, I think, helps the Rangers and then just having Shesterkin as compared to Auntie Ranta in net for the Canes, I think gives me uh, it gives me a shot to pick the Rangers. So I think the Rangers do come out in this series and they win uh, over the Hurricanes. I think they do it. I I can't tell you the length though. I think I think this does go seven. I think it goes seven. But the key for me, I think, is um, I think on the road again. Just just Carolina's got to win on the road if they get. One road win, then I will pick the Hurricanes because we know what they can do at home. We know what they can do at home. But shifting over to the Western Conference, though, Colorado and St. Louis. Um, after game one, I was very surprised to see the Avalanche win 3-2 in overtime because you got to remember, the Avalanche have been off for over a week before that game. And St. Louis is coming off a very uh, strong performance as well, beating... Um, winning their series. Um, so I definitely would have thought there would have been rust on Colorado. Um, but if you ask me just, you know, even if they have been off a week, offensive physicality, the edge to me probably goes to the avalanche. When you look at what they did in game one, 47 hits, they took 54 shots. The, 
the one problem I could see is the power play because they were 0 of 3 in game one. So special teams, I think, could be, you know, an edge for St. Louis. I think the Blues um, can find a way if they can play very strong on the penalty kill. Um, that and just the overall defense. I think when you have a uh, former Stanley Cup winner in Jordan Bennington at goalie, um, they scored their only power play. Uh, keep that in mind. That's why I think special teams is going to be absolutely huge. You know, they're third in the entire league among playoff teams in power play at 33%. Um, they were able to score, as I said, on their only power play, and then they limited the Avalanche to 0 for 3 on the on their power play. So their penalty kill was extremely strong. Their special teams was very well, uh, very well played in game one. And then Jordan Bennington, even though he lost. 51 saves on the night, 51 saves. This is a Colorado team that put up like five or six goals in all four of their games in their first round sweep. Now they've got a much uh, tougher task. Colorado does in trying to get pucks past Jordan Biddington. And then the defense in general, 27 block shots. I think St. Louis does find a way to limit them slightly. I think just a little bit. But I still like the Avalanche to win this series just because they they can find different ways to win. And once they get in a groove, it, it's really hard to uh, to stop that train. So uh, give me uh, for the series victory. Give me the Oilers on that one. But then the final one is a is a big time battle up in Canada. Flames and Oilers. Flames and Oilers. Wow. I think you got two. Just unbelievable. Nine to six was the Calgary Flames winning. I unbelievable. I've I've never seen uh I've never seen a game like that at all, let alone a playoff game. Co nine to six. I'm just pulling up the numbers real quick. I mean, just wow. Absolute wow. Um definitely, you know, what what I said in the previous series about um Mike Smith. He's 41 years old, okay? Keep that in mind. He's 41, and I said the strategy for the Kings was to just continue to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, and eventually you'll wear him out. And that's what you did to a point where he got pulled. He got pulled. I mean, look look what happened. After the first period, it was 3-1, to one, and then second period, Edmonton had the advantage for 3 but then it was 3-1 in favor of Calgary. I mean, just offense, I think, is going to be – at a premium after this game. I mean, you got Matthew uh, Takat, Takchuk. I think I hope I'm saying that right. <laughs> He's he, he got the hat trick. You had uh, Rasmus Anderson put up a goal and two assists. Blake Coleman put up two goals and uh, no assists to be the three stars. But I just think Calgary, you know, because we know what the Oilers can do when they get their shots. I mean, they only had 28 shots uh, on the game. And yet they put in six goals on net. But look at Calgary. They got 48 shots. 48 shots. And I should also keep in mind that Edmonton, those six goals, none of them were on the power play. 0 for 4 on the power play. Meanwhile, Calgary was one of three. So I think Calgary, if they can continue, obviously it's not going to be a nine to six game every single time. At, At least that's what I'm hoping in this series. 
is that it's not nine to six for game two, game three, game four. But we know that Edmonton might be one of the strongest offenses, one of the strongest scoring teams in all of hockey, all of hockey. But Calgary has been able to match it. And I think Edmonton just, they lack on defense a little bit. They lack on defense. I mean, I yes, they had the advantage in block shots, uh, 14, 14 to nine, but giveaways were 20 to eight. 20 to eight, 20 for Edmonton, eight for Calgary. I think this is much more competitive than anyone wants to make it out to be. I know Calgary does have the home ice advantage, but I think if their offense can basically hang around with Edmonton and their defense can limit the Oilers in any possible way, then I'd go with the Flames to win this series. You know, I think it's huge that the Flames didn't allow a single power play goal to Edmonton, and they scored six times, six times. So all they got to do is just win the neutral zone and they'll win this series. You know, I would still favor Edmonton to probably bounce back for the time being, but I think for right now, this might be the most competitive series and the most interesting series in the entire second round. That's what I think between these two is that it's going to be highly entertaining, but not just for this series, the whole second round of the Stanley cup playoffs is sure to be one that NHL fans will be happy to watch. So we've got our big headlines, obviously, with the playoffs taking place, but we've got some other headlines we got to get into. So let's dive into this week's edition of Quick Hits. And we start with some news in the NFL. Another name was taken off the free agency market a little bit late. Jarvis Landry makes his way back to Louisiana, where he played school in LSU. The New Orleans Saints have signed Jarvis Landry to build up their offense. And honestly, if you ask me, I think New Orleans has great offense right now uh, building up. Obviously, you have Alvin Kamara still in your backfield, but you've got a returning Michael Thomas. You drafted Chris Olave. Marquez Callaway uh, showed some flashes during his rookie year. Bring on Jarvis Landry. I think that's a great receiving core that you have. But the one question is going to be, you know, what we talked about last year, and that is the quarterback position, okay? Ever since Drew Brees retired, there's been a lot of questions of who's the guy, who's the guy, and obviously Jameis Winston, he played okay, I think, uh, last year before he got hurt, but is he going to be the same guy when he comes back uh, to training camp? Because, you know, the Saints obviously wouldn't have brought him back if they thought he can still be that guy. I mean, they do have insurance uh, in the backup position with Andy Dalton, but... You know, has Jameis Winston sort of gotten over that hump of throwing interceptions at a frequent frequent rate that we saw in Tampa? Has the Saints coaching staff, because you got to remember no Sean Payton anymore, has Dennis Allen, that coaching staff, sort of uh, turned it around for Winston? And will Winston be able to limit those mistakes? Um, if you ask me, though, I still think that the Saints are the second best team in that division. Not better than the Bucks, but definitely better than the Panthers and the Falcons. Um, so I think the Saints, if they have all their pieces uh, working together in harmony, then 
this could be a team that challenges for a wildcard spot. I got to shift back to basketball really quick because this happened in the previous round of the NBA playoffs, but I'm still blown away to see the Phoenix Suns blow a game seven with a performance like that. 46 they were down at one point. They were down by 46 points. The leading scorer was Cam Johnson with 13. Okay, that means Devin Booker didn't put in more than 13. Chris Paul didn't put in more than 13. And they eventually lost by, I think, like 30 at one point. I'm just, I, I had to mention that there because I think this is the worst game seven performance in all of sports. To show up like this and get your doors blown off. I mean, it was different, you know, at the game seven I went to between the Celtics and the Bucks because it got blown apart late. The Suns weren't in it from the opening tip. From the opening tip, they did not lead and they just looked completely outmatched by the Dallas Mavericks. So considering the performance, you know, that Phoenix had, you know, I think because um, A, it was a game seven and B, this was the best team in all of basketball, you know, Basically, from the start of the regular season to now, they were the best team, and now they're gone. They're eliminated from the postseason, and we got to wait again to see if Chris Paul is actually going to get a championship. Sticking with the NBA, though, we had the draft lottery take place earlier this week, and it was the Orlando Magic for the fourth time in their franchise history getting the number one overall pick, followed by the Thunder, the Rockets, the Kings, and the Pistons. Now, in early talks about, you know, draft discussion, I think what Orlando is going to do is I think they are going to select the guy that they want to build their franchise around. That's that's ultimately what I'm thinking. They see this number one pick and they see this is going to be our franchise guy. Because honestly, I don't, it's early, but I still don't see Jalen Suggs as the guy um, I would say, you know, my guess would be Jabari Smith just because, A, you already have Jalen Suggs. Um, and then you also have Wendell Carter Jr. You know, if if they give up on Wendell Carter Jr., then it's probably going to be Chet Holmgren or Paolo Banquero. But, you know, the Magic's small forward position was Franz Wagner, and he's 6'10". Okay, I don't know if your small forward is supposed to be 6'10", but I think preliminary discussions for me probably be Jabari Smith picked at number one uh, from Auburn. But of course, the prize possessions are Chet Holmgren from Gonzaga and Paolo Boncaro from Duke. I think at that number two spot, um, the Thunder are in the ideal spot because I think they would be smart to get a center. They've already got, I think they've got a good backcourt in a SGA. Uh, you had Josh Giddy who came out of nowhere. Uh, they just got to fix that center spot. And I think Holmgren or Boncaro would be that guy. And I think the Thunder would make a great selection if it was one of those two guys. But it's still months away. We'll see what happens and if any more developments take place before the NBA draft. We talked last week about the PGA Championship and the little headlines on and off the course, but we know what the field is going to look like. We know it's not going to have Phil Mickelson, who withdrew after being listed. And honestly, I think it's just all about comfortability for him. And, you know, in my eyes, you know, about Phil, I would think that 
he's waiting for the moment where it's kind of like a water under the bridge thing, but I don't know if it's ever going to get to that spot for Phil. So I think he's just got, he's got to come and he's got to play. He's got to play out and it could be a whole year until we see him. It could be months. We don't know that. We have no idea. We have no idea how people are going to be receptive. And when the moment comes that he does play in a tournament, I want to pay close attention to what the crowd and what the rest of the field, uh, how they how they take him, what that reception is. Um, but I mean, you got a must-watch pairing that's playing right now: Tiger, Rory, and Spieth. Come on, those are possibly three of the greatest golfers in the last ten or fifteen years all playing together. They're legendary golfers. Um, but I don't think any of them is going to win, though. The betting favorite right now is Scotty Scheffler, just because he's won a bunch of tournaments and a bunch of majors recently. He's the betting favorite, but I think I'm going to go with Xander Shoffley. He's the number 10 golfer right now, and honestly, it's just it's just instincts. I, I can't tell you any more than that, you know, what specifically he does great. Um, but I, I just like, I think Shoffley's going to win this one. I think he will win the PGA Championship. <laughs> And then finally, we get to baseball, and we've got a superstar injury, but he's not missing any time. Bryce Harper can still play for the Phillies despite having a UCL tear. That's right. The reigning MVP has a UCL tear and can't throw for at least six weeks, according to what the Phillies have said. But because of the universal DH, he will be in the designated hitter spot for the time being which is very surprising to me. And I think this is why the universal DH should have been in a long time ago. You got a bunch of guys who are hurt, um, you know, thinking of um, just, just thinking of um, injuries of the past for any star in the national league. And, you know, it, if there was, if there was a universal DH, they might not have had to miss any time. You could still have their back. Now I will say Harper might not be as effective at the plate because he has that UCL tear, but it's similar to what Shohei Otani did. He just couldn't pitch uh, when he had that Tommy John. Um, the fielding, though, for Philly, I think is going to be really, really important because you got to put Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos out there in the outfield. And we know, statistically speaking, they are not uh, two of the, they're one of the two worst uh, fielders in the game right now. So I think the fielding does take a hit for the Phillies, but it's good thing to see the reigning MVP isn't going to miss any time. And hopefully on the, uh, hopefully we see the Phillies continue uh, to play well with Bryce Harper still in the lineup. And that ladies and gentlemen wraps it up for this week's edition of quick hits. time as always for our let's get local segment of the week and before we get into this week's segments i want to let everyone know look out for a special let's get local segment coming out in the near future i'm not going to say what it is but i can tell you everyone who was involved had a tremendous time and this is one of the maybe the most fun things i've worked on since i started this podcast so be on the lookout for a special bonus edition that relates to this let's get local segment but 
diving into what our Boston teams have been doing. Obviously, the Boston Celtics in the conference finals, they did drop game one in Miami after an absolutely brutal series with Milwaukee. And as I said, I was able to attend game seven, but we could go all the way back to game six. I mean, what a performance that this Celtics team has put up all postseason, all postseason long. I mean, that game six, you know, bouncing back from that game five, Jason Tatum going toe for toe and ultimately getting the better of Giannis Antetokounmpo, 46 points on the night. And then going on to game seven, everyone shooting the lights out, especially Grant Williams, 27 points, seven three-pointers made. Unreal, absolutely unreal. But the series does shift now to South Beach to take on the heat. And honestly, like I said in the first segment, if you're a Celtics fan, there's not really any panic. There's not really any panic with losing game one because you know the circumstances. The circumstances was you only had a day, basically a day and a half to prepare for the Miami Heat um, after an absolutely brutal series. And I mean brutal talking physically. The, the way Giannis was bumping into Horford and Grant and all of these guys. It was a brutal series between those two. You only get a day and a half to prepare And ultimately, if you take away that third quarter, this team is winning that game. You know, that that's just a couple of things, you know, just a couple of outliers right there. Your outliers for game one was that you didn't have Marcus Smart. You didn't have Al Horford. The other outlier was the third quarter. It was an absolute killer. But you could just see from that team there the way they uh, they looked. They were just exhausted. I mean, Jimmy Butler outscored the entire Celtics team in that third quarter Butler had 17 in the quarter and the Celtics had 14 points as a team and they were outscored by the heat overall 39 to 14 in that third quarter you know they shot two of 15 from the field Jason Tatum turning the ball over six times in that quarter but if you look at all the other quarters outside from that You could say the Celtics were the better team. You know, in that fourth, they kept it close, but they ultimately just couldn't get it close enough to where uh, they were able to make really a deep run uh, to make a comeback. Um, But watching game one, I see two big players that I think are going to be extremely important in this series. The first one to me is Robert Williams. I mean, when you look at what the Time Lord did in game one, 18 points and nine rebounds, but early on, He was a lob threat. He was getting offensive rebounds, something that the Celtics were lacking in their previous series. And, you know, as I said, I would, it looked like he had the advantage over Adebayo in the paint and just overall in general, you know, Time Lord isn't quite the physical kind of center, but in terms of just tracking down the ball and putting in the points, he was able to do that. I mean, the points in the paint were in favor of the Celtics in game 148 40. So I think if he continues to be a huge factor, if he plays better than Bam Adebayo on both ends of the floor, then the Celtics will have the advantage. That's the first player I see who's going to be huge. The second one I see is Peyton Pritchard. I think Pritchard has built a bunch of confidence during that Milwaukee series because he got a lot. He's been getting a lot more minutes as the playoffs have been progressing. I mean, he had some huge shots in game seven against the Bucks, I think he finished with 12 
points on four three-pointers. He had an unreal step back, I might add. Um, and then in game one against Miami, he put in 18 points off of the bench. So similar to, you know, when I talked about in the previous segment, how Miami and Boston are basically similar, you know, if Pritchard continues to shoot the way he is, the Celtics have just as much depth scoring the ball as Miami does. If you've got Pritchard going, if you get Rob Williams effective down low, and then you have um, Horford and Smart knocking down shots, Grant Williams hitting shots, and then you got your two uh, lead horses, Brown and Tatum, leading the charge. So those are two players I see having a big role and being a big factor in this series. But obviously, it's going to come down to transition defense. They got to fix that. You know, immediately after turnovers or missed shots, the Heat were running. You know, I thought this was going to be a Miami team that slows things down a little bit. But they were running with the Celtics, and you could tell that, you know, the Celtics were just a little bit gassed uh, from that Milwaukee series because Miami was beating them up and down the floor on offense. So the transition defense got to get better, especially off of turnovers. And then just limiting the turnovers in general, you know, we we've seen this team, you know, they've owned up to it. You know, they're, they're limiting. They've said, we got to fix those turnovers. So I expect this team to turn it around. And from the reports that we're seeing, just getting, you know, I got this notification real quick that um, Al Horford's been upgraded to questionable. Uh, if he can clear health and safety protocols, Marcus smart said he's uh, probable. And as I said, Derek white is going to be uh, out of the lineup. So essentially you're getting, you know, one player back. So, or uh, I should say you're missing one player and you're hopefully getting two back. You know, that probably means if Horford is out again, you might have to go back to Neesmith, which I will add Neesmith had some good minutes, you know, overall it wasn't a fantastic game, but um, defensively he had a huge block um, at the rim. Um, he had some spurts offensively, not going to say you got to lean on him now. Um, but in terms of just being sort of like a seat filler, essentially for all these injured guys, I, I do have confidence in that, but obviously he's just got to let the offense come to him. He's got to realize I'm just in there because our guys are out with injuries. And the fact that he came in and was effective in that first half, um, does give me some confidence that this team has the depth to be able to come out and win this series. So I think the confidence is still there that they can beat the heat uh, in a seven game series. But I think this game is going to be huge. Um, I'm not going to say the series is totally over if they lose this game and go down 2-0. Um, but I think it, it it's vital that they win this game, especially with the lack of depth uh, that they've, they've had in South beach so far, because by the time the series shifts to Boston, you're hoping that um they are fully healthy, that the, the full rotation is there. But we go from the playoffs to the regular season and talk about the Red Sox. And slowly but surely, the Red Sox have been getting better. There's still a ways to go, but they're getting better. They've won five of their last eight games. And I look at um, the bullpen and I look at the lineup. But first, last night, Nick Pavetta against the Houston Astros. My goodness. He has been pitching so much better than the beginning of the regular season. He's gone from a liability to someone you desperately need in that lineup. I mean, last night you had the two-hit complete game against the Houston Astros. I mean, there was a leadoff home run by Jose Altuve in the first, but that was it. There was only like one hit after that. But over the last three starts, 
He's given up only two runs. He's walked only one batter, and he struck out 20 hitters. 20 strikeouts over his last three starts. Very, very impressive. And if you have him in that starting rotation with Nathan Evaldi, which, yes, I know he did get rocked, but that will happen once in a while. A healthy Michael Walker when he comes back, and you have Garrett Whitlock, who's now in the starting rotation and is slowly getting better and getting used to being a starting pitcher. I think the starting rotation is very, very strong. Very, very strong. And I should also mention Rich Hill. Rich Hill, who can give you five really good innings. Um, But again, the two things I see for this Sox team as the difference is the bullpen and the lineup. I think, you know, while the bullpen is maybe not the worst in all of baseball, the problem I see is pressure moments. You know, when you give uh, this Red Sox team, you know, a lot of insurance, if the lineup gives you a ton of insurance where you're up by like eight or something like that, um, or if the game is a total blowout and you don't have to worry about any kind of pressure moments, that's when the bullpen, I think, plays their best. I think when you have to hold a close lead or you have to keep a deficit from growing, I think that's where they struggle. I think that's where this bullpen struggles. You know, there's not a ton of guys where you could say, let's go to him so we can shut it down. You know, you're just kind of experimenting with a bunch of different stuff, like with Strom and Diekman and Robles and all of those guys. So I think pressure moments is what the bullpen's got to work on next, is holding a close lead. And luckily last night, you didn't have to go to the bullpen because Bavetta went the whole stretch uh, with a complete game. Um, but that's on the bullpen side of things. The lineup I see is slowly, again, everyone, all the factors are slowly coming around slowly, but surely they are, uh, coming around. Obviously you got your big hitters doing their thing. Bogarts, Devers, JD Martinez had like an 18 game hitting streak at one point. Um, but then you've got other guys who are sort of heating up as contributing hitters, not saying we're looking for the long ball from them. Um, but they're slowly being factors. I mean, this past week, you had Trevor Story hitting another home run. You got Kike Hernandez playing better than he did at the beginning of the year. Um, Verdugo is slowly coming around. Vasquez, all these other guys. They're slowly coming around, and they're heating up uh, to be strong contributors. Now, it they are still a ways back of the Yankees, which everyone's a ways back of the Yankees, the way they are playing in the division. So you got to hope that you can turn things around enough where you're climbing back into the wild card race. That's what it's got to be. That's the mindset for this Red Sox team, because you don't want to lose your season right away. And you got to hope that the start of the season where they were 11 and 20 is hopefully not indicative and they're too far behind for any kind of contention. So it's still, it's the middle of May. There's only been about a month and a half uh, played. We're coming up on two months played in the MLB season. So there's still a lot of time for this Red Sox team to turn things around, but there is not any time for the Bruins to turn it around because they don't have a season anymore. The Bruins season coming to an end in that game seven loss last Saturday in Carolina. Now they did have a little comeback going. They got it three, two with 20 seconds left, but it was just too short. Comeback was too little, too late. You possibly put more time on the clock than I think they would have tied it, you know, considering how they played, but they just, 
it, it was, again, another turnaround. You know, this team does not play as well on the road than they did at home. And it took until maybe five minutes left in the third period that they said, huh, this is what we do strong on, uh, on the road. Let's try and keep it that way, you know, but they just didn't get enough power play opportunities. I think they only had like one power play the entire game. And then they just had to score first, which they weren't able to do. You know, when this team is trailing, there's not a ton of uh, confidence in there. You know, then they let up the second goal and, um, you know, the closest they could get it was two to one. So they had to score first. They didn't get to do that. And then they just didn't get enough special teams opportunities. So, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there needs to be a big overhaul for this Bruins team. Cause obviously the big question is, will Patrice Bergeron return or will he retire? Now he has said he couldn't see himself playing anywhere else. So that's good. That's a good thing. I do ultimately think this comes as a sort of a year by year kind of thing, because I would say Bergeron had probably, you know, maybe his sixth best season in his NHL career. I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but just looking at what he did, um, you might look at it as a year by year thing where you just have him in the locker room as a big contributor, kind of similar to what uh, Zanano Chara was doing. But I think there's just, you need more scoring depth. I think you can't be too top heavy on the lines. Um, you still have Jake DeBrusque, even though he has said he wants to be traded, he's still on your uh, roster. So for the time being, he's he's got to be a guy. Um, Taylor Hall is not the guy. And uh, Pasternak kind of disappeared in the postseason. So I think you need more scoring depth. I think that's what it's come down to. Because I like I like the midseason acquisition of Hampus Lindholm. I think him and McAvoy are going to be really good as a first-line defensive pairing. Uh, you put uh, Brandon Carlo also on the second line. I think the 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 lines are good on the defensive end of things, which you know that was a that was a question coming into the season was getting depth at defense. I think they did that by getting Campus Lindholm. Now you just got to get another scorer. I think you know just to to because you got Patrice Bergeron who's thirty six, Brad Marchand who's thirty four, and you've got David Pasternak who basically disappears in the postseason, you need an accomplished score to take the weight off your old veterans and your guys who seem to disappear in the postseason. So that's what I think um, Don Sweeney has to do for uh, this Bruins team to continue to be contenders. Cause you don't want to go through a full rebuild. You know, you could arguably say that this team should have been second in their division, but they finished first uh, in the wild card. So it's going to be real interesting to see what the Bruins do for their season. Um, but it'll also be interesting to see what the Red Sox do midseason and if the Celtics can find a way to get to the NBA Finals. As always, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And once again, we are sticking in the city of Boston for quite possibly the worst first pitch you will ever see. So this week's LOL moment of the week goes to Steve Aoki, the famous DJ, which by the way, he was at game seven, but I had no idea that he was. They showed him on the Jumbotron, but I was like, who is that? And then 
ultimately I saw him again, uh, throwing out the first pitch at Fenway and, uh, I knew who he was. So that was Steve Aoki, but this is, as I said, quite possibly the worst first pitch in history. I'm not talking like in MLB, but just overall in general, if anyone's had to throw a first pitch, this might be the worst. Look at this video. He completely airmails it. It's not like 50 cent where he completely misses on the side. This is over the top onto the netting that they have over the fans. This is horrible. Absolutely horrible. He airmails this thing about 20 rows deep. If there was a crowd behind Matt Barnes, who was catching that first pitch, but I'll let um, you guys, the listeners and viewers, try and discuss who had the worst first pitch because looking at Aoki, I think it's worse than 50 cent. Cause when 50 cent made his pitch, it was off left, but it wasn't extreme. Yes. It was really wide left, but it wasn't like he went all the way into the stands or into the dugout for that pitch. Aoki completely airmails this over the over Matt Barnes, over the photographers, and into the into the net. I mean, wow. <laughs> I know that if I ever throw a first pitch, I don't want to go long like that. You know, I would much rather it, you know, maybe it was a joke. Maybe it was a joke for Aoki that he just wanted to throw it to the fans. But if he would have thrown it to the fans, you know, he would have gotten it onto the side, possibly over the netting, you know. I guess you have to talk to Steve Aoki about that pitch because I don't know what was going through his mind. You know, did the, did the ball like slip um, on his fingertips? I, I don't know, but I, I think if you were to ask me, this is a worse first pitch than 50 cent. I mean, 50 cent nine years ago, keep in mind, this just happened recently. So, I mean, I feel bad for Matt Barnes who had to catch it. He was basically just crouched down for no reason. But as I said, I'd rather, you know, um, let it go short if I was throwing a first pitch rather than go long. I would much rather do that. Now, I did play baseball, so, I mean, obviously it's different. But, like, if I was throwing a first pitch, I would want to spike it in the dirt. Because at least, at least for professional pitchers, they intend to get it in the dirt sometimes. Um as compared to Aoki, who wants to throw this thing like a football from end zone to end zone. So Steve Aoki, for possibly the worst first pitch in baseball history, you have landed yourself into this week's LOL Moment of the Week. So that wraps it up for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you're watching us on YouTube or listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure, as always, you are following our social media pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All you got to do is search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you got a point, you got to get across. Just let the whole world know. Shut up and let me speak.